The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today, we talk with Greg Lucas from New Visions for Public Schools in New York City. As the Deputy Director of School Culture and Climate, he oversees social-emotional learning, school safety, and restorative discipline initiatives. Greg talks with us about the nuances between school culture and school climate, the importance of social-emotional learning for adults, and why we should never take kindness for granted. Here are your hosts, Andrea and Mia. So welcome back to the Grow Kinder podcast. This is Andrea, and we are delighted to have Greg Lucas, the Deputy Director of School Culture and Climate at New Visions for Public Schools. Greg, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And my co-host, Mia, would you like to say hi to Greg? I would. Greg, we're so happy to have you talking with us today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Mia. So we have spoken to quite a few people (laughs) this year on the podcast that come from various backgrounds and have entered education in various ways. So we'd love to hear how you got into this work. Sure. Well, much to my father's dismay that I did not become an attorney, (laughs) I started out out of grad school kind of doing more clinical work, work with families in the mental health field, and saw that there were huge gaps in services in the communities because so many people that need service don't always get what they need from those outside organizations. And schools can play a really intricate role in being a connector for services for families. And so that just naturally kind of led me to looking into schools and what school-based supports could look like for young people. And then I had an opportunity to be a part of a transfer school here in New York City, which is a small school that's designed to serve students who are overaged and undercredited. They generally have a host of challenges that have kept them out of school or have led to them being unsuccessful in school and previous experiences. And this is a new opportunity for them to kind of reimagine school. And so the idea in a school like this is that there's kind of like an instructional side that's relatively traditional, but then there's also like this other side that's really supposed to be a variety of supports, really meant to kind of help bridge the gap identify what some needs are that are creating barriers for young people to be successful in school and help to bridge those barriers by providing counseling in school and also helping them to identify other types of community needs. So I had an opportunity to jump in on the ground floor at a new school, kind of like managing those support services. And I've really been in the school space ever since at different capacities. And that's kind of what got me here. Cool. And Greg, kind of describe for us, what's a day in the life like for you? (laughs) <laughs> well, right now, no day is is really the same. I oversee disciplinary supports, social emotional learning, and school safety issues and a host of other things across a network of about 10 charter high schools in New York City. And so my day generally can look like me running from school to school, hopefully not responding to crises, but that is a part of what I do. But the other parts of what I do is I get an understanding of how schools are supporting students and how intentional they are about building culture in schools, and then understanding what kind of supports that they may need to kind of improve school culture for students and staff. And so we like to try and design plans that help support them to grow positive school culture. And that might look like me coming into the schools and leading 
de-escalation trainings, restorative practices trainings. Sometimes I'm not in school. Sometimes schools are coming to me and we're working on social emotional learning supports and how they can really thrive in schools. So we don't just do the PD, but we spend a lot of time on implementation and strategy, right? Like what are these tools? So many times educators go off to these conferences, you go to the two day, you go to the three day, you learn a bunch of stuff, you have a great time, (laughs) you come back and it's like right back into the grind. And we don't really get a lot of time to think critically about what needs to happen in my space for these services to really exist and what needs to happen with the adults in the building to really move this work forward. And so, you know, we do a lot of the professional development, but we also work with our schools to really think about what are the strategies and also the systems and structures that really need to exist to kind of like build frameworks around school culture. Hmm. And speaking of systems and structures, I think maybe it was two years ago now, I, I did a review of these changing titles in schools. So across the education landscape, we were seeing introductions of, you know, school climate officers or directors of SEL and it was growing very rapidly, and I'm sure that if I revisited it now, I would be shocked by how <laughs> exponential that growth has been. So do you find that there's you know, acceptance of your role and that people have an understanding of what your role is, or do you find yourself really explaining it, or do you feel like that's kind of hit critical mass in the schools you're working in? I think that's a good question. I think I will say that there's definitely been an increase. There's been a rise in the profile of that type of work and that type of role. And it's not just existing in school space, but like districts are hiring at the district level, like directors of culture and directors of social emotional learning. You know, charter authorizers are looking at that work and wanting to know how schools are effectively looking at that work. So I definitely think that there has been an increase of awareness around the work. But to be honest, I kind of see it as a blessing and a curse. And I see it as a blessing in that I think it's really good that schools are understanding that we need to think critically about how kids are experiencing schools and that they come into schools with a whole host of challenges and that we need to think critically about how we build relationships and how do we make school experiences relevant for young people and that that absolutely affects their ability to learn and grow. And so I think it's really exciting that schools are paying attention to that work. The part that I will say what's a curse is that sometimes when we begin to designate roles for people around this work, we kind of centralize the work and we think that this work can live with a person, right? And I think that's very dangerous when we start thinking that, you know, a dean of culture or a director of student affairs can somehow carry forward school culture in a school building. You know, most of us who've worked in schools know that school culture really requires everyone working cohesively towards like a common vision and mission. And whether that's pedagogical or whether that's in terms of school culture and how we build relationships, we all kind of have to be moving towards like, what is this North Star that exists for this school? And that's never going to happen with one person kind of like managing what that looks like. And so I think we're in a space now where we're, I think it's great that we have people that are identified in these roles, but I think there's so much more work to do to understand like what is school-wide school culture, what does school-wide social emotional learning need to do? What are the systems that need to exist to make sure we all are kind of approaching this from a school-wide perspective? Yeah. And so it sounds to me, Greg, like, you know, the first step is kind of the important first step was to maybe designate the roles, but now it's like, okay, we have the role, but like you said, it can't just rest in one person. And so now 
There's a lot of figuring out about who else do you need to bring in. You know, it's, it's not just about identifying frameworks, right? It's about, like you said, building those relationships and making sure that the work is spread across. So what are some of the success stories that you feel like, given that, <laughs> where are some areas where you feel like things are going really well in your work? I think all of our schools have done a really good job of really kind of like working towards creating thriving, positive cultures for their schools. You know, I wouldn't want to just name one school, but I will say that some of our schools have, yes, they've invested in these roles specifically, but then they've also put in a lot of work around mission and vision, right? And so when they talk about social emotional learning, they don't allow that work to just live with one person. I have a school that has really brought together a social emotional learning team, which is comprised of people that have different roles across the school. Some folks are pedagogues, some folks work in more of like the disciplinary space, and some folks are more in like the counseling and support roles. But all these folks are really coming together to understand social emotional learning. And here's the thing, some of their very first PDs around social emotional learning that they've been turnkeying to their own staff have really been about understanding how social emotional learning exists for adults. Right. in adult spaces, right? Because right. I know that we don't need it. I know that we're all super well-adjusted. <laughs> I know that we don't have any problems and we are totally able to compartmentalize those things and we never bring our issues to work with us ever, right? right? I get that. But, you know, for, for the one or two people that do struggle with that, right? Like I think, you know, some of our schools, this one school in particular has done a lot of work around, you know, diving into social emotional learning, using the the CASEL framework the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning Framework to help ground everybody in this common language. And so now they've had like a successful year. Now, you know, you can walk into any classroom and you can hear a lot of common language around social emotional learning. You can hear a lot of common language around when folks are putting together lesson plans and kind of like building experiences for young people. You can hear teachers name you know, social emotional like learning traits that they're looking to see in a particular piece of their classroom or their teaching experience. And so I think, you know, they're proof positive that you can really make this like a school-wide initiative. And I'm excited for what they're doing now and, and what they'll be doing as they move forward. Hmm. And you were talking about, you know, terminology. And I think that as the popularity of social emotional learning has expanded, there's a lot of things in the mix. We see a lot of new entrants that what they're doing is not truly in that category of social emotional learning, but they're claiming the language there. And in the past, we had a lot of discussions here at Committee for Children about how social emotional learning and school climate interact and that there are school climate initiatives that don't necessarily require social emotional learning strategies, but that it's part of it. And I wonder if you'd just describe for us, you know, what do you mean by culture? What do you mean by climate? And how do you think of social emotional learning in that mix? Sure. When I think about culture, right, I think about the personality of a school, right? The beliefs, you know, the norms, the traditions. If you were to invite me over to your house for dinner, there may be things that I'll learn about your family very quickly when I come to your house. That I'm a poor cook pictures. primarily. <laughs> but <laughs> well, go hopefully ahead. not that, <laughs> but you might have pictures of your family you might pray before you have dinner. You know, some people might be designated to serve the food. There might be certain cultures that elevate the importance of certain things for your family, right? And in a school, 
in much the same way. There are traditions, there are customs, there are practices that promote what we say we believe about young people, right? And so one of the things that I, I love to do is I love to show school leaders like their mission statements, right? Those lovely, well-written mission statements that live on a banner somewhere majestically in your building as you walk in. And I ask them to deconstruct that mission statement a little bit and tell me what is it about their school? What are the practices? What are the things that make this mission statement come to life in their building, right? Like, how do I know? This all sounds really good, but how do I know that you believe this about young people? How do I know that you believe this about kids, right? And so that to me really is what school culture is really all about. And I think we often talk about climate in the same way that we do culture, but I find climate to be a little bit more of, I like to call it the temperature of a school, right? I think sometimes you can have a really strong culture, but I think sometimes the climate can be off. You know, you can have a wonderful school community that's thriving and they may have just had an act of violence. There may have been a death in the school community. There might've been something really great that has happened. But when something like really shifts the school, doesn't matter how good the culture is, sometimes the climate is shifted. Right. And so, you know, I, I say like sometimes when there's been a significant act of violence in a school, you can feel the climate shifting. Right. You can see people behaving a little bit differently than they normally do. Right. And I think the goal of a good leader is to recognize the importance of climate and you recognize, you know, how do we bring school climate into a place where everyone feels safe? Right. Like you can be a well adjusted person and have a bad day. Right. And so that might affect how you're going to move and interact with people for the rest of your day. Right. And so I think it's paying attention to climate really has to do with really monitoring the temperature of your school, kind of like day to day, moment to moment. And what are those like micro practices that exist across your school from the custodian to the gym teacher to the lunch person? Right. Like what are those interactions like? Are they all aligned? Do they all line up with what we believe culturally about our school and about our adults and about our young people? Right. And the idea here and how this all ties into social emotional learning Right, is that you know our our goals here are really for young people to really enter into a form of partnership with adults, especially in the high school space, right, which is where I operate the most. Right, we want we want to see partnership, and we know that young people are more inclined and they're more productive when we're doing things with them rather than to them or for them, right. And so, what does that look like for us when we are growing young people's ability to kind of like navigate spaces? both in school and when they leave our school, right? We want, you know, I'm, I'm always talking to our schools about, you know, tell me how in the way that you resolve this conflict that you've empowered young people to solve this conflict on their own moving forward. Or tell me how, you know, you've helped them become reflective in this space so that they're more aware of their behavior moving forward. Because if there hasn't been any growth emotionally, then really all we're doing is we're trying to solve young people's problems. And if we're only trying to solve young people's problems, then what is the goal? Is the goal for us to get young people to be compliant? Or is the goal truly to help young people grow into adults that can solve their own problems, that can navigate life on their own? And just being honest, right, working in New York City, you know, working in an urban climate, you know, there's a lot of things that our young people, when they leave our schools, are going to have to navigate. Right. And everybody doesn't look at them with the same wide eyed optimism that maybe their teachers have. Right. And some of them may be judged before they even get 
to do anything in this world. And so our young people have to navigate that. Our young people need a specific set of skills and abilities to really navigate this world. And I think we owe them the responsibility to begin to have that conversation. But I also say, I wrap all that up with the idea that it's not just about acquiring and developing skills for young people, but it's also the acquiring and developing of skills as adults, right? And what is the work that we have to do in spaces? You know, I think sometimes we look for advisory curriculum and we look for all this wonderful SEL aligned stuff. And we're thinking this would go so well in my school. And I worry about the school that's always looking for student facing material around SEL. And I say, if we have not grappled with any of this work for ourselves and what it means for us, I think we've missed a crucial step in true SEL implementation. And do you think, Greg, I think, you know, this, gosh, you've just said so many interesting things. And I really hope that our listeners are those who are teachers and those who are not teachers are really appreciating the way you talk about the responsibility of the adults in a school. Like you just don't get to have a bad day. Like those of us who are not day-to-day working face-to-face with students have a hard time really understanding that. I mean, those of us who used to don't, but, but, you know, to understand that you don't get to have a bad day because you can really have a really significant impact on someone's life. And so I'm curious about how, like even a percentage of the adults that come to work in, in the schools that you're working with fully understand as they're entering into the profession. You know, I think a lot of times people think, well, I I really enjoy working with youth. I want to make a difference in the world. I enjoy some subject area, especially if it's for, you know, older kids. And how many, you know, even really have had that kind of preparation to deal with what, just what you're talking about? That's a great question, right? And I think, right, Mia, listen, the reality is (laughs) that, you know, whether we want to or not, whether we think we deserve to or not, we're all going to have at some point, we're going to have some pretty bad days. And I think what's important is I would be mindful when I'm talking to a teacher about having a bad day. I would say, I'm not going to say that having a bad day is the worst thing in the world, but having a bad day is an opportunity to learn about what you need, Mm -hmm. right? If you're having a bad day, how does that affect the teaching and learning environment that you step into? Mm -hmm. If you're having a bad day, how does that affect your ability to make relationships with young people? If you're having a bad day, how are you able to recognize what are the things that you can recognize about yourself when you're entering into a space that might be triggering for you, right? That might send you down a rabbit hole of emotion and it really cripples your ability to build relationships with young people because it's your ability when you are self-aware enough to know I'm having a really bad day, there are certain things that I need. And I would even tell teachers, you don't have to put on a show for young people. Guess what? The kids probably already know that you're having a bad day. But are you self-aware enough and can you be vulnerable enough to even say, I'm not having the greatest day. And this is what I really need from you guys in this space today. Or listen, if I'm being a little harsh today, I'm having a bad day. I don't want to take it out on you, but I want to give you license to call me out, right? If I'm not being me, if I'm not honoring our classroom agreements that are sitting right on that wall behind me, that we all got together and collectively said, this is how we're going to communicate with each other. This is what respect looks like in this classroom. We collectively made that those classroom agreements. And if including me, if I'm not holding us to that, I want you to have the right to call me out on that because just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean that I can disregard those things. And the reality is when you model that for a young person, you are empowering them as well because guess what? Your kids are going to have a bad day. 
But just because they have a bad day, your expectations is not that they're going to be able to disregard all of the expectations that you have for them. You're going to want them to be able to power through a bad day, elevate what they need, right? Talk to you, help you understand that they're not maybe not going, that they're not feeling well, that they maybe need a timeout, right? That they want you want them to use their voice. You want them to be self-aware and you want them to effectively problem solve around those things. And who are they going to learn that from? They're going to learn that from the teacher in the classroom. So I would say, you know, if you're having a bad day, you know, how do we use that as an opportunity to be a bit of a learning moment for kids and for ourselves in the future? This is reminding me of something I listened to recently, and I'm going to totally get, like, I don't remember what the research was, but it was, a. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about this research around parents who are stressed or experiencing stress at work, having a bad day at work and come home. And they did a study where they looked at parents who they asked to shield their children from that, that they're, you know, experiencing some negative emotions and to try to kind of go about their time at home with their kids, like nothing had happened. And then they had other parents that were like, be in your emotion, talk about it, express your, like, I'm really down right now. I'm feeling really frustrated, you know, and the kids with the parents that were shielding them from that. Those parents thought, my kids don't know, I did a good job of this, but actually their interactions with their kids later were more negative. Like the kids had kind of an effect mm. from that, whereas the kids that whose parents had disclosed how they were feeling, I think the result was that they felt like they had a better time with their parent during, you know, it was something like they knew that there was something under the surface or the ways that you were interacting with them had been affected by that emotion without you disclosing it. Whereas when you were kind of in the feeling and saying, this is what's happening, those kids had a more positive experience with their parents. I'll have to look up that research again. But I thought about as a parent, how much I do that in this attempt to show my kids that it's okay, and they shouldn't get the effect of what's going on in my day or my emotional life. And, you know, it's it's compelling (laughs) to think, oh, I could actually just be in my emotion and honest and, and show them productive ways of dealing with that. And even doing the work here, you know, it, it doesn't always occur me to do that. <laughs> it feels more natural to say, well, they, I don't want that to affect them. So I'm just going to act like it didn't happen. I agree. I think that that's a really great point. You know, as a father raising two young boys, I'm constantly aware of how I show up for them every single day. And I have the opportunity to work with a wonderful organization called A Call to Men, which really is about kind of like dismantling you know, toxic masculinity, you know, combating gender violence. And we're connecting this organization with our schools so that our schools are getting trained to understand how that shows up for them in their own practice. For adults, again, you know, it was something that, oh, wow, this is amazing. A call to men has curriculum. Maybe we can do it in the classrooms. I was like, well, why don't we start with us? Why don't we explore how toxic masculinity shows up in our own lives? Right. And as we begin to do this work, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, this is me. This is me as a dad, right? And so, you know, I don't want to go home and, and and just suck it up, right? I want to go home and be able to be expressive. If I need to cry, I'll cry, right? If I need some time, I need some time. But I want my, I want my sons to be able to see, right, that you don't have to live inside a box of toxic masculinity, right? That you can identify as, as a man and still, you know, have emotions and process those emotions and be verbal about those things and be vulnerable with somebody that you love and trust. And so I'm like, I know that they're not going to learn that from anybody more than they'll learn that from me. And so I totally agree. I I think that if you don't do that, you know, your emotions, they're going to come out in some other way, right? Like there's only so much 
you think that you're putting on for your kids, but they'll know and it'll it'll show up in some other type of mass digression in your life in some way, shape or form. I think, you know, we're this sort of hints at the things that you you kind of do in your work and the way that you approach life and how that affects parenting. And when you were talking earlier, I, I, this question popped up for me, you know, what was your own high school experience like? And how do you bring things forward from that that you want? Or how does it affect your work now? Are there things that you're like, I definitely don't want that to be the case for the schools I'm supporting? Because it's interesting to hear how your educational experience affects the work with the schools. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Well, you know, high school wasn't that long ago. (laughs) 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 I will say this. I think high school for me felt overwhelming. I remember experiencing anxiety every single day going to school. My school was a relatively large school in comparison to the size of schools in New York City now. I remember the anxiety of not knowing a lot of people. I remember the anxiety of not being very social. And I remember never really feeling like I belonged. And I just remember the anxiety that I carried. And I remember no one knowing about that. But I also remember like some adults who were so good at building genuine relationships with me. And the thing is, you know, to be honest, they never went above and beyond. They didn't wait for me after class. They didn't take me out for lunch or anything crazy like that. But they would just say things. They would they would show interest. And that always resonated with me. And I wasn't an athlete in high school. I wasn't somebody that you would recognize right away. I kind of flew under the radar for the most part. But there was a couple of teachers who always appreciated because they always seemed like they genuinely care. And to be totally honest with you, there's also a couple of teachers who were teachers of color, who I particularly gravitated to because I saw so few of them in the building. And they were they were younger teachers. And I just, I wondered why there were so few of them. And the ones that were in school were really vibrant and engaging. And the kids were always trying to sneak into their classes, even when they didn't have them, which was great, right? And they were amazing. There was a science teacher, there was an, a math and algebra teacher, And they weren't gym teachers, right? They were teaching content, core content, and they were just wonderful young educators that many of us loved and just we would always gather around. And having those experiences, I just remember them so vividly. And we didn't have a ton of interactions. It was sometimes it was just the image of them. Sometimes it was just them being around us. Sometimes it was just them pouring into us. But I don't think I ever had like this deep meaningful connection with any one particular teacher, but sometimes their presence and their ability to just show up for us in in different ways was so impactful. And when I think about school experiences now, when I think about, you know, one of the things that always resonates with me, and I, I often ask teachers and counselors when I'm training them, is I ask them to think about an adult who had a meaningful impact in their life, right? I often ask them to think about their high school experience And almost always someone can remember a teacher, a counselor, someone who made them feel special, someone who made them feel that there was hope and promise inside them. And then I always ask them this question, did you ever tell them when you were in school about how, you know, they made you feel about yourself? And almost always the answer is no. And I say that all the time to say, you know, you're, and I tell my teachers, you're going to have that same effect or you're having that same effect on young people right now. And they may never tell you the impact that you're having, right? But you have to understand that you have to approach this work with a level of intentionality because you are shaping people 
who will never tell you thank you, who will never tell you that your words impacted them, that your words put them on a, a different trajectory. You may never hear that, but you have to work as if people are telling you that, even though they might never get an opportunity to do so. That's a great call out. It really is. And it's not, you know, I loved something that you said about it might not even be a teacher you have. It might not actually be a teacher that, you know, you have any kind of relationship particularly with, but their presence in the school made a difference. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, working in education, I'm often asked or asked to reflect on, or sometimes we ask people like Andrea did about that. And I always think back on my high school and I'm like, well, there wasn't really anybody that inspired me, but really, Greg, to your point, there were surely a handful of teachers in the school who, you know, not just I, but everyone thought were great. And if you did have their class, even if they didn't give you special attention, maybe I just didn't need it or anything or, mm. but, but they really made a difference. Right. And they, you, you're exactly right. Even by small things that you say, or your approach to curiosity or learning really absolutely does shape people for life. Yeah. Really interesting observation. So we do typically also ask people about someone in their life that made that impact on them. And you've <laughs> talked about having a few that did that. I'm also curious if you you know, have any sort of tips or things that you encourage classroom teachers to do, simple things that you think do make a difference as far as relationship building or affecting the mood or the climate of the school. Are there, you know, I, I had a teacher who like high-fived everybody in in the hallway. I didn't have that teacher, but I still had to high-five him when I went by, right? Like his enthusiasm was so contagious. But are there things that you feel are simple that teachers can adopt that can help with that climate of the school? That's a great question. I think that it's hard, right? Like I think sometimes we will do trainings on, you know, student engagement and how to build relationships with kids. And sometimes it seems so overwhelming. We make it so complicated, but sometimes it's really not complicated. Sometimes it really is like, what is one thing that you're willing to commit to and do with intention for an entire school year? Because we all, at the beginning of the year, we say we're going to stand at the doorpost mm -hmm. and we're going to greet every kid as we come in. And probably by about November, no one's at the doorpost anymore. Mm -hmm. right? But what is the thing that you can do with intentionality. Maybe you write personalized messages when you're grading papers. Maybe, you know, maybe you're like, by the first week of school, I'm going to remember everyone's name because believe it or not, teachers don't always remember kids' names. And I'm going to make it a point to call everybody by their name. Maybe I'm going to call everyone's house, not just the kids who are driving me crazy and they're not getting the work done, but I'm going to call everybody's house just to introduce myself and to give them some feedback about their young person. And here's the crazy thing, ask parents for tips on how to work with their kids because our parents are the experts of our students, right? So there's, there's so many things that you can do that you can commit to, to do. Even I know people say like, what was your weekend like? Or there's some teachers at one of my schools who do this really interesting thing. I think it's like on Thursdays, you know, like on social media where there's like a throwback picture Thursday, they'll do something similar like that in the classroom. And these two instructors will put up a throwback picture of themselves. And usually there's a small story behind it. So if a teacher is putting up a picture of him playing little league baseball, he'll say, you know, this is my flash, my throwback photo, and this is me playing little league. And he'll maybe share something about that experience. 
And then another teacher will do the same thing. And I think they even started getting the, the students involved. And it's something that they built into the culture of their classroom where, you know, it's like, I care enough about you that I want to give you a little bit of a peek into my life, right? And I think that it goes a long way to humanize teachers, right? To let them know that they're human. And I think that that we have to do a better job of that, right? And we have to do a better job of humanizing ourselves. And we have to do a better job of humanizing our students. And they are more than just the person sitting in front of you that has some work to do, right? There's so much more that makes them who they are. And we have to humanize our students, especially our students of color, especially our LGBTQ students who are constantly getting stripped of their humanity, who constantly have to fight for their own humanity. What are we doing in schools to make sure that we're showing them that we see them, that we see them as people, right? And I think that, you know, when we talked about like describe an educator that, you know, motivated you, what we were talking about is like describe someone who saw you, right? That's really what it boils down to, right? Is describe someone who saw you, right? And, you know, I would always encourage people like to see one another, to recognize each other's humanity, right? And then like, what are the small ways that that looks like for you, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be these grandiose gestures. It can be small things that you do, right? That you can invite, you know, young people into your world and your space and encourage them to do the same. I have a question kind of going back to some of the work that you're doing with the adults and then some of the work that the adults are doing with your students in your schools. As you know, our podcast is called Grow Kinder. And we'd like to kind of lean into that idea of kindness. And it isn't always the sort of the top attribute of an SEL curriculum that people think about. But I'm curious to know how you view kindness and how you see that manifesting in the schools that you're working in. Well, you know, I think I see kindness one as recognizing the humanity of people, right? Recognizing that we are more than just we are in that space, right? Like a teacher is more than just a teacher. A student is more than just a student. There are many things to other people, right? And I think at first we need to recognize that about one another, right? And I think that when we are able to recognize that about one another, we can begin to look at each other differently, right? And I think that that is a huge piece to building culture and this idea of like embracing kindness. And I think sometimes we think of kindness as this meek and, you know, soft thing, but kindness can be boldness. Kindness can be courageous conversations, right? Kindness can really be like embracing one another enough to have challenging conversations with each other, right? And so kindness can be gentleness, but kindness can also be boldness, right? And I think that, you know, we should think about what that looks like in all of our spaces. And, you know, speaking specifically to the space you're in now, when you think about the schools you're supporting and, you know, New York City schools in general, what are the the things that, you know, you're excited to see that you're looking forward to? What are some trends that might worry you? You know, how do you kind of see the state of of education there? Well, I think, you know, for me, the trends that always worry me is this idea of, you know, how we contextualize discipline in schools. You know, discipline can be a means to really grow someone's self-efficacy, but it's rarely ever used 
in that way. And I think that for far too long, we've been using traditional school discipline as a form of punishment for young people, discipline that perpetuates messages of value to young people, that if they do something wrong, that they inherently are wrong, that if they do something bad, that they inherently are bad, right? And how do we disassociate that, right? How do we help young people navigate mistakes without saying to them that they are simply the things that they've done wrong, right? And I think that that is one of the things that I'm always worried about is, you know, how discipline and this idea of punishment and zero tolerance is showing up in schools and how it perpetuates the criminalization of our young people. But what I am hopeful for, what I'm really excited about is to see schools exploring alternatives to traditional discipline, because I think that it is opening up different conversations between adults and young people. You know, I am a restorative practitioner. I train a lot of our schools on restorative discipline and circle keeping. And some of the most powerful experiences that I've had have been in facilitating circles with teachers and to see the level of openness and vulnerability when they enter into those spaces right? I'm amazed. You know, teachers have the capacity, but they just don't always have the opportunity. And to see teachers, you know, get into these spaces and talk about their challenges with young people and talk about how they don't want to criminalize young people, but they don't necessarily feel like they have options or they feel like, you know, they're scared of looking weak in front of the rest of the class and the power struggles. And there's something so powerful about being vulnerable in in a circle space and talking about that with colleagues that they're going to get out of that experience more than they would an hour-long workshop around de-escalation, right? That they're really going to be able to lean in to this idea of, you know, what does, you know, respect and authority look like in the classroom? And what does it mean for me to potentially be vulnerable at the risk of, of looking weak in front of a class of teenagers? And so the more we jump into those spaces, the more that we're seeing adults willing to be vulnerable you know, a lot of schools will say that they use restorative practices, but I've, I've been in a few schools and I've seen circles being facilitated. And really the idea here is we're just going to sit in a circle and have a traditional disciplinary conversation. And there's really nothing else happening. Like the students are not speaking. The students are not part of the problem solving. We're not looking to repair harm in the community. But then there are schools that are really authentically trying to engage in the restorative process. And when you see it, you know it. When you see a teacher sitting in a circle with a young person and being able to say that they are disappointed and that they were hurt, but that, you know what, Johnny, when you threw that chair in that fit of rage, I was really disappointed, but I realized that in response, I raised my voice, I yelled at you, and I commanded you to get out of my classroom, and I realized that that was not helpful to the situation, and for that, I want to apologize, right? And so all of a sudden, like the environment shifts and something is happening. Did a teacher just apologize to a kid after the kid threw a chair in his classroom? That sounds way off. That sounds like a very non-traditional approach to how we're going to resolve something, right? But, you know, those are the spaces that we're looking for, you know, for us to get to a place where we're really thriving as a culture and we're really kind of like building opportunities for our kids to really be their authentic selves, to show up for one another, and for teachers to continue to build authentic relationships with students. Greg, that sounds like really, you know, important and 
exciting work that you have coming up in the new year that you'll be continuing with. Anything else that you are really excited about for this coming year, either personally or professionally? Well, yeah, oh my gosh, there's so much. So, you know, here at New Visions, I think we're we I think we're really excited that as a network, we've done really well with our schools. A lot of our schools are outperforming, you know, district schools. A lot of our schools are seeing higher graduation rates. And that includes a lot of young men of color who in other spaces haven't been getting the results that we've been able to see here. And so we're really excited about that work. But we also realize that our kids that are having more success in terms of high school graduation, it's still not necessarily translating into post-secondary success. And so one of the things that we're really focused on is how do we ensure that when our young people leave our schools, that they're successful when they leave, that they have a plan for success, that they have an articulated plan for success, and that they have the abilities and the skills to enact that plan. And so I think that's kind of what we've been really thinking about here at New Visions. And one of the things that we've been working on, a few of us here, is we've really been looking at specifically young men of color who go to our schools, what are the things that need to exist? What are the series of experiences? What are the missing ingredients for young men to really help them make a successful transition from high school to college or the working world? What are the experiences that they need? What are the things that we need to be doing? And so we started to bring together stakeholders from across New York City, not just educators, but people that are supporting young people in different spaces, after school, college access, just different types of organizations who are interested and invested in wanting to see our young people succeed beyond what they're currently doing. And so we've been having a series of think tanks with our stakeholders, and it's been really exciting to see folks come together and really brainstorm around what we need to be doing collectively to improve outcomes for our young men. And so right now we're in the process of developing a summit that will primarily be an adult-facing summit where we can really bring together some folks that are really doing some exciting things and take a look at some emerging practices around engaging young men of color, but then hopefully to build something out that is student-facing that we can do maybe even year over year. So we're, we're excited about some of that work. We're excited about our continued partnership with some other organizations like A Call to Men and a few others, you know, because we know that we can't do this work on our own. And any any school district, any school that's doing this work, that's trying to do good work, you know, I, I would challenge them to look beyond their four walls and to understand what's happening in communities, to understand what's happening in churches and community-based organizations, what are the elected officials doing, and how do we bring them all to the table to collectively solve for these some of these challenges that we're seeing. You know, so many times we try to attack the work in a very siloed way, but we're really trying to invite people into the space to have larger conversations to hopefully have greater impact. Well, thank you for sharing that. And as we're kind of coming to unfortunately, the close of our time with you. I wonder, we asked most of our guests to share with us an act of kindness that they've witnessed recently. So it doesn't have to be big. It could be you, it could be others, but is there an act of kindness that you've witnessed that you could share with us today? Wow. An act of kindness. <laughs> it's so funny. I actually serve on the as a board of director for this amazing organization called New York City Relief, which is an organization that provides outreach, uh, food and and clothing 
and hygiene kits to New York City's most vulnerable, which are homeless. So I, I have the unique privilege of seeing kindness happening day in and day out with some of New York City's most overlooked population. But it's so funny, you know, today I was on the train, <laughs> I was on the train today and, you know, this woman comes in and she's holding this giant bag of Christmas gifts with one hand. And I notice that her other hand is in a sling. And so obviously I, I jump up and I tell her to have my seat. And so she sits down and we begin to have a conversation for the better of like 25 minutes on our train ride. And she's an older, she probably, I don't want an ager. I, I know better than to try and put an age on a woman. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but she was an older woman. She was white. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, I'm large black man and getting into small talk with an older white woman is just generally not something that I do day in and day out. And this one small act of kindness, right, resulted in us just having just a conversation. Now, we weren't talking about the- yeah, A you connection. Know, we weren't talking about anything particularly serious. I mean, we were talking about the season. We were talking about our families, but we were sharing with each other. We were making a connection and it was a genuine connection. And it was sweet. It was short-lived, but it was nice, but it it was all sparked with a gesture of kindness, right? And I think that, especially when you think about folks who may never have had that opportunity to connect with one another, I think, you know, acts of kindness have this way of creating opportunities for us to connect with people that we might never had in the first place, right? We, we would look at each other and think that we are in from two completely different worlds, and maybe we are, but in that moment, we were able to share and have an authentic exchange. And it started with a kind gesture. And I hope that story is not self-serving because it was me being kind to somebody else, but it's the first one that I can think of. Well, it's, it was lovely. And we've so appreciated our time with you today. Where could our listeners learn more about you or your work? Is there anything you'd like to share with them? I'd love for them to continue to find out about new visions for public schools. And they can come visit our website, www.newvisions.org. Come find out. We we only do not have charter schools, but we also act as a support organization for district schools across New York City. We have some wonderful curriculum that we've developed that is accessible on our website, which I think would be fun and interesting for folks to come to check out. And of course, a shameless plug, if we're always looking for educators and exciting professionals, to come and potentially join the team. So I would encourage anybody to find out more about newvisions.org to visit the website and there's plenty you can learn there. All right. Well, thank you so much. Greg, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a true pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you guys. Take care. You too. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Greg Lucas, the Deputy Director of School Culture and Climate at New Visions for Public Schools. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.